Well, here we are in Revelation tonight, chapter 19 and 20, but we didn't quite finish Revelation uh, chapter uh, 19 last week, and so we will try to finish chapter 19 and all of chapter 20 tonight. And so if you have the notes from last week, and if you don't, let Robin know and she'll give you more notes uh, because we do have the notes from last week. If you need the complete set of notes all the way from chapter one, let Robin know and she'll give you that complete set as well. So uh, uh, we'll pick up where we left off and that is uh, Revelation 19 beginning in verse 19. And that would be in your notes from last week. And that is uh, uh, highlighted uh, supplement number nine, supplement number nine. So we're Revelation chapter 19, uh, beginning in verse 19. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 19. The Bible says in Revelation 19, beginning in verse 19, then I saw the beast and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast, miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and who worshiped his statue. Both the beast and his false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding the white horse, and the vultures all gorged themselves on the dead bodies. And so here we find two feasts. One of them is a wonderful marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven, and it will be delightful. It will be food that you have never tasted before. It will be better than even my wife's Robin's cooking. It is going to be incredibly amazing. And everybody will attend one feast or the other. How do we know? The Bible tells us so. Either that feast or the feast that we find here at the end of this chapter, the vultures all gorge themselves on dead bodies. So, which feast would you like to attend? The choice is yours. So, if you have your notes from last week, and if you don't, raise your hand and Robin will distribute notes from last week. We're going to pick it up on page five, the third bullet point down on page five of your notes from last week. So if you don't have them, raise your hand. Robin will give you the notes. And once again, those notes say, Supplement number nine, supplement number nine. So, um, and then you should have two supplements, supplement number nine, supplement number 10. And if you don't have the complete set, let Robin know and she'll give you the complete set as well. So the Bible says, as we have just read, the armies of the world are going to gather together. All the armies of the world. As you know, this past week, the coalition between Russia and the OPEC nations was formalized. And so now it is no longer OPEC, 
you know about that, the oil producing countries. It is OPEC plus, and the plus stands for Russia. It is expected that within the next few months, there will be other nations joining Russia and OPEC, so maybe it will be called OPEC plus plus, I don't know. But for right now, it's OPEC plus. So when you hear about OPEC or OPEC plus, it's, it's the Middle Eastern oil producing countries plus Russia. And so the Bible says the armies of the world are going to gather together in the plain of Jezreel. A couple of months ago, Robin and I had the privilege of going with uh, uh, about 40 of our friends uh, from the orchard and elsewhere to Israel. And we spent quite a bit of time right there on the plain of Jezreel. We were on a lookout, looking out on the most targeted, the most strategic landing strip in the entire world. Now, Sergeant Randy is a pilot, been a pilot uh, before he even went in the Marine Corps, and then he was a pilot with uh, Missionary Aviation Fellowship, uh, one of, if not the largest, private air forces, if I can use that term, in the world. He was a missionary flying planes all over Africa for Missionary Aviation Fellowship. But this airstrip in the Middle East is more strategic than any airstrip than Sergeant Randy has ever landed a plane on or taken off from. It is more strategic than any airstrip in the United States, more strategic than the Strategic Air Command in uh, Colorado Springs. It is one single strip right there in the Valley of Jezreel. This plane in Northern Israel is also known as the Valley of Megiddo. And we looked out on that and everything was underground. Top secret, top secret. It is the most targeted airstrip today of any airstrip, any airport, military or civilian in the world. And this is really going to happen. And what we're going to be talking tonight is going to happen at this place. This place is also known as Armageddon. So the Bible tells us 200 million soldiers have come from the east. If you go to your earlier notes, it describes all the nations coming from the east. And you know it has been decades now that China has boasted they can field an army of over 200 million. And they can. Uh, so it will include China, but it will include other nations as well from the east. The Antichrist has moved into Jerusalem to secure his power base. According to Daniel chapter 11, the South will come along with the Arab states and join forces and move toward Israel. The South includes the Pan-African nations, uh, better known as Libya to the north, uh, other nations there in that region. That would also include Egypt. At the same time, the northern armies will come down from Europe. So this is the world's largest concentration of soldiers ever in all of history. And this is really going to happen. The roads are being built. Robin and I have traveled on one of the newest roads through the Himalayas that is being built as an alternate land route for China to move their forces 
from China through Tibet, through the Himalayas, down in through Nepal and heading straight on down then to, uh, to Israel. Um, it's already being prepared for. It's at Armageddon that they converge right here in this valley. They are coming to fight one another. But just as this great battle begins at the very beginning of the battle, there is a sound in the sky. The Bible says everyone looks up. Everybody looks up. And they see, and can you imagine, they see the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, Jesus Christ, coming down from the sky riding a white horse with a great army behind him. And who is in that great army? We are. We are on that great army. Not to fight. We don't have to fight at all. Because we will see, as we saw last week, from the very words of his mouth, the enemy is annihilated. But I'm getting ahead of myself. His eyes are like fire. Can you imagine? Jesus Christ. Eyes like fire. He's crowned with many crowns. We talked about that last week. If you weren't here, it's in your notes. Or you can go online and watch it over again. Perhaps those many crowns represent the many different denominations. Some churches where there are wonderful Christians, the leaders wear great big hats. Some of them, they wear slick down hair. Some of them, they wear baseball caps. Some pastors even wear a t-shirt when they, when they preach on Sunday morning saying, love God and love people. Different denominations, different churches, but the one thing in common is every one of those individuals whether they come from a denominational church or a non-denominational church, loves Jesus Christ, and they have committed their life to Jesus Christ. It's not about the denomination. It's not about a non-denomination. It's about our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. At any rate, whether those crowns represent the different denominations or not is speculation on my part, and I admit that. But we do know that he is riding a white horse, horse leading a huge army, including us, and suddenly, as all of these armies are gathered together for the greatest battle in the history of the world, they look up and they all turn all of their weapons, be they small arms or be they missiles, on him. This was Satan's plan all along. Satan tricked the generals. Satan tricked the presidents. Satan tricked the prime ministers. Satan tricked the heads of staff, the chiefs, the military generals to come together for this great battle by saying with his demons, I like to picture them perched on the shoulders of these generals and heads of state saying, go to the ghetto, 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 like a frog like in Pharaoh's day, when those frogs were used by the enemy to bring about those counterfeit plagues. You remember the story. So this was Satan's plan all along. 
we read in verses 16 through 19. The Bible says in verse 20, and the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast. Miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and who worshiped his statue. Both the beast and his false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Verse 21. Their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding the white horse, and the vultures all gorged themselves on the dead bodies. Verse 21. Now we spoke about last week this sword. You perhaps have seen those classic paintings, those artist renditions of this flaming sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus as he's on this white horse. I don't think that's really going to be the case because the Bible says the word of God is quick and powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. The Bible says he is the word incarnate, the word made flesh. The Bible says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the Bible says it was he who spoke the world into existence. It was the word of Jesus Christ who spoke the world into existence. But David, I thought God created the heavens and the earth. Oh yes, he did. Who is God? Jesus Christ is God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, we talked about that earlier, three different persons of the Godhead, but three in one. So chapters six through 18 of Revelation are all about the tribulation. During this course, we've studied in detail the seven seals, the seven seal judgments, as you recall, what they represent, what the breaking of the seals represent, the title deed to planet Earth. We've talked about that. We studied about the seven trumpet judgments, what they represent, and the seven bowl judgments as the angels pour in the last half of the tribulation, three and a half years to the day, we know to the day, the greatest judgments of them all. We studied plagues, pests, problems. We've examined suffering, scorching, and sorrow. We've read about heartache, earthquakes and death and now we come to chapter 19 hallelujah hallelujah we're done with that chapter 19 the glorious second coming of jesus christ it's interesting only one chapter only one in the entire book of revelation is devoted to the climax of this book man i would have had it just the other way I would have had all those chapters devoting to the second coming of Jesus Christ in one chapter about the tribulation. That's enough for me. Why? Why? Why did God, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, through Pastor John, the Apostle John, when he was on that island of Patmos, writing down what God would have him write down? Why would he spend so much time on the tribulation? on the seven churches and all of their problems, what they were doing wrong, as well as what most of them were doing right, all except two. Why? Because this book was written by a real pastor, a real pastor named John. And Pastor John ministered 
to the people of seven real churches. He shepherded them. He cared for them. He was with them when they were hurting as best as he could. He not only taught them the word, but he laughed with them and he cried with them. He ate with them and he taught them. And these people were going through horrendous times, far worse than anything you or I have ever or will ever experience. These people were being fed to lions. Robin and I have been in some of the Colosseums where Christians were fed to lions. It's, it, it, it becomes quite real when you're in that Colosseum, the exact same Colosseum that these Christians were fed to lions and torn apart by other wild beasts. They were sawn in half lengthwise and crucified upside down. Their bodies were impaled in stakes, their entire body, and then mounted up in the garden so Caesar Nero could go through riding on his chariot naked, laughing at the bodies of the Christians who were lighting the path for him in his madness. At least six million believers would die before the persecution ended. And when I said they would die, they didn't die just with a shot to the head. In fact, last week marked a, a, an anniversary of two martyrs at the stake in those day, who were burned at the stake. And in those days, the loved ones, the families of those Christians that were being burned at the stake because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ, not to the government church, but to Jesus Christ, they were viewed as heretics, and the loved ones would place a small pouch tied around the neck uh, of the individual that was to be burned alive at the stake. Just a small little pouch. Inside that little uh, cloth pouch, a thin fabric, was gunpowder. The purpose of it, so when the flames would hit the gunpowder, then they would die quickly. Last week was the anniversary of two martyrs. One of them died quickly that way when the gunpowder exploded. The other, the powder did not go off. And so while his lower half of his body was literally being burned, and I won't go into any more detail, he said to his friend, who is still alive, be of good cheer. This day we will be with our Lord in paradise, even as he was being burned. This is what they were going through, going through terrible, terrible tribulations. So John reminds his flock, life is brutal, painful, and bloody. Perhaps some of our Christian friends in Kiev in the last three days, as the missiles have hit Kiev every day for the last three days, in fact, I think today is the fourth day, could tell you about the believers in Kiev. Robin and I have a very good friend that we have traveled with to Thailand, to India, and to Nepal, and maybe a couple of other places, uh, but anyway, and she was recently in Kiev just to encourage the Christian women, to encourage the churches there with the, with the group that she, that she traveled with. Maybe they can relate. Pastor John certainly could relate. Why? Why? Why does God allow these things? 
Because when Adam and Eve fell, the whole world fell with them. John was warning his people that even in the midst of their own tribulations that they were going through, if they ate of the marriage feast that we'll study about in Revelation 19, they would be able to face the trials and tribulations to come. David said the same thing when he said, you prepare a feast before me in the presence of my enemies. Uh, about 60, almost 60 years ago, almost 60 years ago, I was a young Marine in a foxhole in Vietnam with another Christian. We had been overrun. My job was to fire a flamethrower. They don't shoot very far, and so they put us right up front. I went to fire my flamethrower, and it didn't go off. Unbeknownst to me, we were in the foxhole. The flamethrower was on the parapet of the foxhole. The gun group, the part that fires the flamethrower, had been hit by an enemy grenade and uh, rendering it inoperable. I didn't know it. There wasn't a big explosion. I mean, sure, there was an explosion, but not like Hollywood flames and all that. And we thought that this would be our last night. Um, and uh, my friend had a rifle. All I had was a pistol in addition to my flamethrower. Uh, and we both, very quietly, in the lull of the battle, as it would come and go, come and go, come and go, during the night, we both, in very frightened and very quiet voices, repeated together, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness. He prepares for me a table in the presence of mine enemies. And we were in the presence of enemies. But he saved both of our lives, and here we are tonight. It's very real. People around the world in North Korea, in Nepal, in rural areas of China, in Iran, and the list goes on and on, are being persecuted because of their faith in Jesus Christ. I cringe when I hear people in the United States say, oh, I'm persecuted at work, or I'm persecuted at home because I'm a believer. My spouse is not a believer. My boss is not a believer. My colleagues are not believers, and I'm under such persecution. In the flesh, I want to slap them across the face and say, you have no clue what persecution is. Is it tough? Sure, it's tough. Are you hurting? Oh, yeah, you might be hurting, but you're not persecuted. Believers in North Korea are being persecuted and other places of the world tonight. And they were being persecuted during John's time as well. And that day is soon coming when that persecution is going to spread all over the world. How do I know? The Bible tells us so. And so when Adam and Eve fell, the whole world fell with them. And John was warning his people, even in the midst of their tribulations, if they ate of the marriage feast, Revelation 19, verses 1 through 9, they would be able to face these trials and tribulations to come. And David said, you prepare a feast before me in the presence of mine enemies. Now, the way to salvation is through spiritual intimacy. It's not through the church. It's not through seminary. It's not through doing good things. 
It's not through memorizing a whole lot of scripture or praying many hours a day or having long devotions. No, those are all things we do, but none of that is good enough. The way to salvation is through spiritual intimacy, and this is most clearly illustrated when we partake in communion. Drinking a little cup of grape juice and eating an unleavened cracker, that's not going to save us, but it does represent that we are disciples of Jesus Christ, and we have committed our lives to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the most important thing in the world to us. It's not some private religious belief that we have. We are unabashed. We are, we are unapologetic that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. We are disciples of him, and that's why we partake in communion, the most intimate kind of worship possible. Being one with Jesus in communion will prepare us for any tribulation in the future. And that's one of the things I love about this particular church, the Orchard Church. Almost every week, we partake of communion. Individuals or couples or families, it doesn't matter. But we are partaking in communion. We are recognizing the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, that his body was broken, that he shed his blood, and that we are clean in his sight. Nothing that we have done, everything that he has done. So Jesus will return. There will be no more battles. In the meantime, he prepares a table before us in the presence of my enemies. End of chapter 19. Are you ready to continue? Ready to go? Chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 1. And this would be your notes that you received tonight in supplement number 10. Chapter 20 of Revelation, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the bottomless pit and a heavy chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that old serpent, who is the devil, Satan, and bound him in chains for a thousand years. Verse 3, the angel threw him into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. Afterward, he must, be re he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They all came to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 5, this is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended. Verse 6, blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. When the thousand years came to an end, Satan will be let out of his prison. He will go out to deceive the nations called Gog and Magog in every corner of the earth. He will gather them together for battle, a mighty army, as numberless as sand along the seashore. 
And I saw them as they went up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people and the beloved city. That's Jerusalem. But fire from heaven came down on the attacking armies and consumed them. Verse 10. Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet, where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were open, including the book of life. And the dead, and and the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. Verse 14, then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, the Bible says, (laughs) the Bible says the beast That's the Antichrist. Whenever you see the word beast, that's talking about the Antichrist. And the false prophet have already been thrown into the lake of fire. We read about that in Revelation 19.20. But in Revelation 20, verse 1 that we just read, the Bible says Satan himself is bound at this time by a single unnamed, unarmed angel. The angel has no weapons. We don't know the name of the angel, but it's not the Lord, not by a host of angels, not even by Michael or Gabriel, the archangel, but by a single unarmed, unnamed angel. That gives you a hint of the power of just one angel. And a few weeks ago, we did quite a lengthy study about angels and we learned that we all have guardian angels. And we learned that we have nothing to be afraid of because the Bible says, greater is he that is in you, that's the Holy Spirit, than he that is in the world. And the Bible also says we all have these angels, maybe one, maybe two, but they're mighty because this one angel, this dude, I don't know what he looks like, but he's awesome. And he picks up Satan and he just, boop, just flips him just flips him right into the lake of fire. No big deal. Now, now you remember, Satan was formerly known as an archangel, but this one angel has more power than Satan, the archangel. His name in heaven was Lucifer. Lucifer was created by God, but he is not the evil counterpart of God. Don't be confused. And in conversations with your friends or family, don't try to represent the times that we're living in as this great battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil, between God and between Satan and and the unholy trinity. No, 
No, <laughs> this is not the way it is. It only takes one hand of one single angel to capture and dispose of Satan. Boop, you're gone. God is in control. He is in control. Does spiritual warfare exist? Absolutely. Are we wrestling against spirits in this world? Absolutely. But it is not a battle that's evenly matched, kind of like the game last night between the Broncos and the Chargers. A pretty miserable game. They were both miserable, and they were both kind of evenly matched. If you don't know, and if you care, the Broncos lost. <laughs> but two rather poor teams struggling it out, and it was a battle back and forth. It went into overtime. This is not what's happening on a, on a cosmic level. God is in control. The Bible says this angel, angel casts Satan, in verse 3, into the bottomless pit, which he then shut and locked so Satan could not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished, in verse 3. Now, this bottomless pit in the Greek language, you probably know it, is called the abuso. It's a place where the worst demons are presently incarcerated. Are there demons in the world today? Yes. Have you encountered a demon? Perhaps. I don't know. Have I encountered a demon? Perhaps. I don't know. But I do know that I have so much problems with my own flesh, my own sinful nature, that I just need to be dependent upon the Lord to help me through one day at a time as I confess my sin daily and allow him to fill me daily with his Holy Spirit. But there certainly are demons. There's no question about that. I've traveled in countries, most notably Haiti, uh, you know, not too far from Florida, where I've witnessed demonic activity. Uh, does it exist in the United States? I think perhaps it does, as some of the vile things taking place among our children by those whose minds are twisted and perverted, even, caught, even to the point of causing mutilation of their little innocent bodies, and I will stop there, could very well be demonic-inspired. Our nation is going darker and darker, and the Bible says in the last days, right will be called wrong, wrong will be called right. And you all can think of illustrations of that that's happening in our society and in our culture right now. But there are certain demons that are so vile, they are so terrible. One third of the angels that followed Lucifer in heaven, and Lucifer had a big head, he was full of himself, and he thought he was equal with God. God threw him out. Some of those demons came to planet Earth, but others were cast directly into the bottomless pit. They are so vile. That's where they are even today. They're presently incarcerated there. In fact, you remember the story of Jesus. Uh, one time Robin and I were in Israel a few years ago, and we stopped by the place where the cliff went directly down into the Sea of Galilee. It's the only place geographically where this took place. So we assumed that this probably, we don't know for sure, but this probably was the place where uh, in Matthew 8, uh, Jesus cast the demons uh, out of this man. You remember the story. You can read about it in Matthew 8. And the demons said, oh, please don't send us to the abuso. 
don't send us to the bottomless pit. It is so terrible, so terrible. They said, send us into those pigs. Now, this was Jewish country, and why was a good Jewish man having a herd of pigs? I don't know, but anyway, <laughs> Jesus said, okay, and he cast them into the pigs, and the pigs just went berserk, and they all plunged off the cliff into the, uh, into the Sea of Galilee. You remember the story. Maybe you've been there. They did not want to go to the bottomless pit. The Bible says Satan will be in this bottomless pit for 1,000 years. Verse 3, the Bible says it's during this time that everyone will live in peace and prosperity, enjoying their own grapevines and fig trees, for there will be nothing to fear. The Lord of heaven's armies has made this promise, Micah 4, 4. The Bible says that it's during this time that no longer will babies die when only a few days old. No longer will adults die before they have lived a full life. No longer will people be considered old at 100. Man, that gives me hope because I'm close to 100. And if, if I was living then, I wouldn't even be old. The Bible says only the cursed will die that young. In those days, people will live in the houses they built and eat the fruit of their own vineyards. Unlike the past, invaders will not take their houses and confiscate their vineyards, for my people will live as long as trees, and my chosen ones will have time to enjoy their hard-won gains. Verse 23, they will not work in vain, and their children will not be doomed to misfortune, for they are people blessed by the Lord, and their children too will be blessed. I will answer them before they even call me. While they are still talking about their needs, I will go ahead and answer their prayers. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat hay like a cow, but the snakes will eat dust. In those days, no one will be hurt or destroyed on my holy mountain. I, the Lord, have spoken. Isaiah 65, verses 20 through 25. Now this is a reference, a prophecy from Isaiah about the millennium. The millennium will be a fantastic time, unparalleled peace, prosperity. Why? Why? Well, think about it logically. The false prophet, the Antichrist, they're, in the, they're already in the lake of fire. There's no coming out. Once anyone is cast into the lake of fire, we call it hell. There is no exit bar none, no exceptions. Satan is not in the lake of fire. Satan is in the abuso, the bottomless pit, two different places. So Satan's locked up in the bottomless pit. False prophet and the Antichrist are in the lake of fire. Life is good. Jesus is ruling and reigning with compassionate love, with righteousness from that holy hill, which always is a reference to Jerusalem. Did you notice that Satan wasn't cast into the lake of fire, Gehenna, but he was imprisoned for a thousand years in the bottomless pit? Why? Because God still has a job for Satan to do. We're going to see that in verse 7. So in verse 4, the Bible says, John saw thrones and the people sitting on them have been given the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony uh, about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshiped the beast 
or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They all came to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 4. Now, it's important to remember, and if, you're, if you missed, I encourage you to pick up the whole set of notes from Robin, but you remember that one-third of the nation of Israel didn't die during the tribulation. God protected one-third of the nation of Israel. How do we know? Matthew 25 tells us so. The Bible says when Jesus returns at his second coming, people will ask him, where did you get those wounds? They're going to see the wounds in his hand. They're going to see the wounds in his side, the wounds in his feet. Jesus will say, in the house of my friends, Zechariah 13, 6 tells us. Where is that? That's Israel. The Bible says at that moment, Israel will at last acknowledge him as her Messiah and all remaining Jews will be saved. Everyone. How do we know? The Bible tells us so in Zechariah 13, 9. The Bible says, although those living in the millennium won't be influenced by Satan, they'll still have their human nature to deal with. Will we be here during the millennium? Yes, we have come down with Jesus, riding our white horses. We'll all be expert uh, horse riders. What do you say? Equestrians. Equestrians? We'll all have our A-plus in equestrian class. It'll all be good. We will come down to rule and reign with Jesus in our new perfect bodies. We will live forever. Our souls, our new bodies will be reunited, will be one. But remember that one-third of the Jews, and there are some of the Gentiles that refuse the mark of the beast, that it came to know Jesus as, and committed their lives to him during the tribulation, they will still have their human bodies, their mortal bodies. They will still be given in marriage. They will still have children. It will be a perfect world. There will be no sin. The lion and the lamb will lie down together and, and all of that. But they will still have their human nature. But the demons won't be here. Satan won't be here but their flesh will be here. This is not us. These are the guests at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Go back to your notes, and we spent quite a bit of time on that. And because they will have their human nature to deal with, the Bible says that these are the people that we, the bride of Christ, will judge. You can read about that in Luke 19, verses 15 through 19. We will be judging them. How do we judge them? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say but we will be judging them compassionately with a righteous judgment. Uh, and the righteous judgment will emanate from Jerusalem because our Lord Jesus Christ will be ruling the entire globe from that point. It will be a glorious time of peace on earth. There will be no crimes, I personally don't believe, that they will commit. Not us, but those people that have made it through the tribulation, made it into the millennium, I personally believe that although they might think of these crimes, you know, I think I might go down to McDonald's and I think I might, well, McDonald's won't be here because it's a perfect world. So, <laughs> but, but, but I think I might do this. I, I, I think I might, and they'll go, oh, no, no, no. My mom, 
my mom and second grade school teachers, they all have one thing in common. They have eyes in the front of their head, they have eyes in the back of their head. I don't think dads do, but moms do. And they just know, they just know. And I ended up in the principal's office more than once in second grade because my teacher had eyes in the back of her head. And sometimes she would say, David, and just, just you know, wave her finger. She knew I was, <laughs> she knew I was up, I was thinking about, you know, being naughty. She just knew that. Yes, teacher. And I think that's kind of what it's going to be like. We will just remind them, because they still have the human nature. No, you don't want to go there. No, you don't want to do that. Now, the first resurrection that we read about in verse 5 begins with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How do we know? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us so. It also includes everyone who became a committed believer but died before the rapture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14. And it includes Christians who are alive at the time of the rapture. And it includes people who are martyred in the tribulation. Martyred because they refuse to take the mark of the beast. And there will be people that will do that. And the Old Testament saints who believed in God but didn't have the opportunity to be a part of the church that we see in the New Testament because they died before Jesus came and established the church. So the first resurrection refers to everyone who accepts and commits their life to God's wonderful plan of salvation for them in verse 5. So even if nothing else in your life goes right, you're extremely blessed to be a part of the first resurrection. That's us. Why? Because you're going to heaven. You are guaranteed promised going to heaven, of going to heaven, verse 6. Now the first death is physical. The second death is eternal in verse 6. We will all certainly die physically unless our Lord Jesus Christ calls us up to meet him in the air, the rapture, and that could happen tonight. It could happen this week. It could happen this month. It could happen anytime. We do know we're closer than ever, but it really is going to happen. It's going to be a real event. But the second death is only for those who are damned eternally. You've heard of the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is not robbing a bank. It's not lying, although God hates lying. It's not the unpardonable, it's not any of that. The unpardonable sin is rejecting the Holy Spirit one too many times. When the Holy Spirit says, Jesus wants to come into your heart and he wants to be the Lord of your life. And far too often that response is, well, religion is a private thing for me. Um, I'll just, I, I believe in Jesus. Well, the devil believes in Jesus. The demons believe in Jesus. The worst actors in human history, they all believe in Jesus. Jesus wants to be Lord. Either Lord of all or not Lord at all. The second death is for those who are damned eternally. In other words, those who are born only once, physically, will die twice. A physical death and an eternal death. But those who are born twice, that includes us, gang, a physical birth and a spiritual birth, being born again, our names being written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We will die only once, that physical death, 
because uh, we will live eternally. We will live eternally. At the moment of death, our body is buried or cremated or whatever, but our soul, who we really are, the twinkle in our eye, who we really are, goes immediately to be with our Lord, to be absent from the bodies, to be present from the Lord. We've gone over that before. The second death has no power over believers, the Bible says in verse 6. So people born in the millennium will live during this time of, shall I say, enforced righteousness and peace, but these people never have the opportunity to decide whether or not to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. As Christians, you and I have made that conscious decision to commit our lives to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Are we perfect? No. Do we still sin? Yes. But we have committed our lives. We want to be his disciple and all of our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. Everyone. How do I know? The Bible tells us so. We've gone over that several times before. So in other words, we have chosen to be chosen. Are you a chosen one? Yes, because you've chosen to be a chosen one. God didn't make you, you made that choice. We've selected to be elected. We selected to be elected. Are you elected? Are you one of the elected the Bible talks about? Yes, because you have chosen to be chosen and you have selected to be elected. Does that make sense? So the Bible says, those born during the millennium are also given this choice to choose, to select who they want to follow. Somehow, Satan will deceive many people, many, many people. The Bible says, as numberless as sand along the seashore to rebel against our Lord Jesus Christ in verses seven and eight. So how, how can Satan deceive so many people after nearly a thousand years, it's been a perfect world with no wars, no sickness, no health issues. People live almost forever. Everything is good. Jesus did nothing but good for them and given them a perfect environment, peace, prosperity, and perfection. But then when I consider how the Lord gave his own life for me, how he provides for me, how he walks with me, how he blesses me even when I turn my back on him. Fail to learn of him and fail to talk to him. Then I begin to understand. I begin to understand how Satan will be able to deceive people living in the millennium, just as people are deceived right now around us. How these people at this time are going to echo the selfish demand of the people 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem when they said, we will not have this man reign over us. Luke chapter 19, verse 14. And the same is going to happen again. So why? Why will the Lord allow this to happen? Because God is love. And love requires a choice. God didn't make anybody, nor will he make anybody to be a robot, any human. We have a choice, and the people in the millennium will have a choice. That does not imply to us, you know. We are already saved. Our name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We have made that choice. You have committed your life to Jesus Christ. You want to be his disciple. So God lets Satan loose, but just for a little while, in order to give people a choice.
verses 7 and 8. The Bible says in verse 8, he will go out to deceive the nations, called Gog and Magog, in every corner of the earth. He will gather them together for battle, a mighty army, numberless as sand along the seashore. Now, it's important to remember at this point in Revelation, Russia has already been defeated. If you weren't here when we went through that, there's a lot of Bible verses and there's charts and graphs. If you don't have those notes, see Robin. She'll give you the whole package. But these, Russia was defeated on the hills of Israel. We went over that in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Gog and Magog in this passage refers to a cataclysmic battle. The Waterloo, if you would, that Napoleon went through. This is Satan's Waterloo, where Satan gets a, he, he, he gets a chance and attempts a final rebellion, the Bible says, with a mighty army as numberless as the sand along the seashore. So because all these people are born during the millennium that made it through the tribulation and their children had children, so forth and so on, there's going to be a whole lot of people. And many of them will choose, even after a perfect world, for a thousand years say, nope, I think I'll follow Satan. And they do, as numberless as a, a sand along the seashore. The Bible says this army of Satan encircles the city of Jerusalem and in a desperate attempt to defeat our Lord Jesus Christ who is ruling from Jerusalem. The Bible says in verses nine and 10, fire from heaven came down on the attacking armies and consumed them. Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Joining the beast and the false prophet, there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The Bible says Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. He's let out of the bottomless pit for a season. Now he's thrown into the lake of fire to join the beast and the false prophet. Now, interesting about the lake of fire, in addition to be, calling, uh, to, to be called the lake of fire, uh, the Bible says uh, that, that hell, in other words, for the lake of fire, is called a place of outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is, is a description of hell. Lake of fire, hell, same thing. The torment in this place is so dark, the Bible says, that even the flames of burning sulfur will not shed any light. It's utter darkness. Have you ever been in a cave where the guide in the cave, the ranger, whatever, turns out the lights and you put your face, your, your, you know, your hand right up to your face, you can't see it. You can't see anything, absolute, that's hell. Absolute darkness. It's not like it's portrayed in the cartoons where there's some little, you know, tw you know, you know little flames of fire, like one behind me, that, uh, that uh, people are, you know, gathered around and they're playing cards and drinking alcohol. And every once in a while, uh, the devil with the pitchfork comes along, kind of pokes him in the rear end. No, that is not hell at all. Hell is a place of absolute, total, complete isolation. All alone for eternity. In other darkness for eternity. We talked about this earlier when we went through our study on hell. All of the human senses, all of the human feelings, thirst, hunger, all of the desires, unfulfilled forever and ever and ever. This torment is exceeded, however, by inner torment. 
inner torment. People will still have their minds. They'll still have their feelings. They'll still have their memories. They'll still have their eyes, but they won't see. They'll still have their lips, but they'll be parched, longing for a drop of water. You can read about that in the New Testament. It will be exceeded only by the inner torment as they recall opportunities that they have had by a friend saying, why don't you follow Jesus? Why don't you commit your life to Jesus? Become a part of a good Bible teaching church. Have communion. Oh, religion is a private thing for me. I don't really like to talk about it. Those are the people that will be in hell forever and ever and ever. Good people. People that voted. They voted the right way. People that joined the right clubs. They did the right things. They paid all their taxes. They had pets that they took care of. They were nice neighbors. Wonderful people, good people. They know about Jesus. They even believe in Jesus. And they will think back, why didn't I listen to my friend? Why didn't I listen to that preacher or that evangelist, that missionary, and give my life to Jesus? They'll live forever thinking about that, wishing that they had accepted that gift of salvation to be forgiven. Jesus specifically taught that hell wasn't created for people, but for Satan and his demons in Matthew 25. Peter said that God isn't willing that any should perish in 2 Peter chapter 3. But you can be sure of this. Those who don't walk in the light of God will spend eternity in darkness. Those who don't give their lives to the great physician will spend eternity in pain. Those who turn away from our heavenly Father will spend eternity in isolation. But, but God says, God says, I would rather die than live without you. And he did just that. When he died on the cross, in order that our sins would be forgiven, that we may live with him forever and ever and ever. The price has been paid. It's not what we do, it's what he has done for us. That's grace, that's amazing grace. So amazing, so divine, that it demands my heart, my soul, and my all. Well, the Bible says in verses 11 and 12, then I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it in the earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So there is more than one book. There is the book of life. And then there are all these other books. And all these other books record every deed that every person that has ever lived on planet Earth has done, every single thing they've done, perhaps even every thought that they have had. Will Christians stand before God's throne to be judged? Whew. No. <laughs> no, we won't. This judgment doesn't apply to Christians. Why? Because we were judged when Christ was on another throne, not this throne, but on a wooden throne. When he didn't wear a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, your name is written in the one book. We know the name of it. It's called the Book of Life. Revelation 3, 5, Revelation 13, 8. 
And the Bible says he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Yes, we're also recorded in the other books. Oh, I'm embarrassed. It's there for God to see every private sin that I've done, every evil thought, everything I've done wrong, which is pretty much everything. But the Bible says the pages and pages containing my sins, your sins, everyone's sins are illegible. Illegible. Why? Because they're covered by the red blood of Jesus Christ. Our name, your name, is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And God doesn't have an eraser at the end of, the end of that pencil. It is permanently engraved. And if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, if you've committed your life to Jesus Christ, then you are saved for eternity. For eternity. May I go three more minutes to finish up the chapter? Thank you. The Bible says in verse 13, the sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, do you remember the book of Revelation was written to a group of people, we talked about that earlier tonight, facing far greater persecutions than we'll ever face. However, this book is as vital for us as it was to them. It's not over yet. Satan and death will be thrown into the lake of fire. They lose. All those, and that's us here in this place tonight, and if you're watching online and you have committed your life to Jesus Christ, you're watching this video, if your name is written in the book of life, then you win. To God be the glory. So we have nothing to fear. I hope we've covered the, the first death, the second death, the second resurrection, and beginning next week, Revelation chapter 21, it's all about heaven. We're going to be talking about the glories of heaven, what we'll be doing in heaven, what will our bodies look like, will there be any sadness in heaven, what about those loved ones that were left behind, what about animals in heaven. We've covered a lot of this in the past, we're going to cover more in the future, so next week will be a great week to, to come, and then there's only one more chapter in the book of Revelation, and that's the very, very best. So. God bless you. Father, thank you so much that our sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. But Lord, help us to remember those good people that we know, friends that we know. They believe in you. But you are not the Lord of their lives. They have not committed their lives to you. Oh, Father, I pray that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to speak very, very clearly, without apology, that now is the day of salvation. And they can be assured beyond a shadow of a doubt that they will spend eternity with you in glory. So we thank you for your great love. We thank you that we will not be judged at the great white throne judgment. That is only for those that don't know you. We thank you, Lord, that the best is yet to come. In Jesus' name.